Can it happen again? Same Jesus, same Holy Spirit, same need. I believe God is just waiting. And if we will live by faith and if we will begin to seek His face like we have never sought it before and open ourselves to whatever He wants to do in us and through us, God can do whatever He wants. He's just looking for people. We've been taking a journey through the book of Hebrews on prayer and faith. We have seen how God took average, ordinary folks, Abraham, Moses, and made heroes out of them simply because they trusted Him and walked with Him and followed Him and sought Him and were willing to walk in obedience to Him. Today we're going to look at what it takes to live by faith. Because essentially a prayer revival, which is where all outpourings of God's Holy Spirit begin and continue in prayer at the place of prayer, is prayer that is prayed in faith. Because praying in faith causes us to begin to focus on Jesus. It clarifies His calling and where He is. It takes us into that supernatural realm of what He is desiring to do. Have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. As I said, this chapter continues the teaching on faith. What we have seen in chapter 11 is the list of all those heroes of the faith. And then in chapter 12, which really there shouldn't be this chapter division because the two sections are so tightly locked together... He moves into a little bit different realm. He's talked about these heroes of faith. And now the writer of Hebrews says, I want us to go into like an amphitheater. Now back in those days, you had these great amphitheaters, the greatest of which was in Rome. And they would have tier after tier after tier where people would be seated. And if you walked in there and you looked up there and the people mostly wore white togas and you looked up there and you saw this huge amphitheater with all these tiers of people dressed in white, it would give the appearance of clouds. And so he's going to talk here about how we are like in an amphitheater. And if you look up, you see what he calls this great cloud of witnesses that is surrounding us, using that amphitheater idea. And this great crowd of witnesses are all these believers who have gone on before us, who have walked with Jesus and served Jesus and given everything for Jesus. These heroes of the faith, some of them well-known and some of them not well-known. Some of them who live lives of obscurity on this earth, but lives of notoriety with God. And they are there looking upon us as we run the race. Now, in those days, they had these huge amphitheaters with those tiers, and then they would do the running in, of course, the floor there. And when a runner would walk out to begin to run, they would loosen and take away as much of their clothing as possible so that they would not be hindered by the clothing as they would begin to run. And so, again, it's this idea of runners that are going to be running at the floor, on the floor of this amphitheater with thousands of witnesses looking on upon them as they run. That's the terminology or the idea that Paul, excuse me, the writer here of Hebrews is trying to communicate. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside 
every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race. And notice how he defines the race. The race that is set before us. How do we run that race? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, my sermon outline is contained on the first page of your Rocky Mount Connection, and I invite you, if you will, to follow along with me. Living by faith means that we give Jesus the highest value in our lives. Living by faith means that we give Jesus the highest value in our lives. Now, notice what he says as this runner enters the amphitheater. As we enter this race with Jesus and for Jesus, what do we have to do? Lay aside every weight and every sin. That is, anything in our lives that has higher value to us is more important to us than Jesus. Anything that gets in between Jesus and us, he says, lay it aside. Lay aside those weights. Lay aside every sin. Now, what are some of the things that you and I struggle with? The folks that received the book of Hebrews struggled with doubt. Can I really trust the Lord? Is he really going to be there for me? Is he going to really have my back? And you know, every struggle that we have in walking with the Lord always ends up back at the place of doubt. You see, every time I opt to go sin's direction, what I'm really saying is, I think sin is going to satisfy me more than Jesus is going to satisfy me. Every time I substitute something in my life for Jesus, I'm saying that's going to get it for me more than Jesus is going to get it for me. That has got more value than the Lord Jesus has in my life. And so he says, lay that thing aside. Pride. Pride, I think, can be called the mother of all sins. Why do we do what we do? Why do we walk away from the Lord? Why do we feel like we don't need Him? Why do we so often in the life of the church not pray? Because we lean on ourselves. And we think we can accomplish it. What I'm about to say is going to sound sort of tough, but I think one of the mistakes that the American church has made over the last 100 years and what's gotten us in so much trouble is that we have leaned on personalities instead of on the Lord. We have trusted how good we could preach, how good we could sing, how nice our buildings could be, how much we could do instead of depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. And folks, the greatest preaching, the best singing, the nicest buildings devoid of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit will not accomplish anything for God. What God is yearning for is not how well we can do church, it's how well we will trust Him and look to Him and call out upon Him. Lay aside, He says, every weight. Lay aside the pride. Lay aside the laziness. Not in doing stuff, but in seeking the Lord. Often we just get lazy seeking God. 
We don't want to take the time to pray. I've noticed through the years as a pastor, through the decades of, of pastoral ministry, that if we're going to have bring in a great preacher, we get a crowd. If we're going to have great singing or a singing group, we get a crowd. If we announce we're going to have a prayer meeting next to nobody shows up. What are we trusting in? The preacher? The music? What entertains us? Or are we trying to really say we want to seek God? What changed the United States in 1857 and 1858 and saw 20,000 people a week come into Christ was not how great the preaching was or the singing was or the buildings. It was God's people seeking His face. And I say, God, do it again. But if God's going to do it again, we can't be lazy at the place of prayer. We've got to earnestly seek His face, believing that He's going to move, and He will move. Notice what He says next. He says, run the race that is set before us. Now, key words in that verse. The race that is set before us. First of all, the language there, run the race. The Greek tense there means to keep on running the race. Don't give up. Stay at it. Day after day, keep on running the race. It's going to take effort. But then notice the race that he says, the race that is set before us. Now, it's this fascinating construction in the original language there. What it's basically communicating is God's got a race for you to run. We don't determine the race we're going to run. We don't determine how God's going to use us. God determines how he's going to use us. Our job is through in prayer, discern how God wants to use us. And make sure we are running the right race. Christians who get frustrated, Christians who give up, Christians who get burnt out, are usually running a race that they decided to run instead of the race that God decided for them to run. If you run the wrong race, it's going to take you to the wrong place and you're going to do it with the wrong pace. Let me say it again. If you run the wrong race, it's going to lead you to the wrong place and you're going to go at the wrong pace. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says, We are His, that is Jesus' workmanship. In other words, what He's making, what He's molding, what He's shaping, what He's forming. Created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. But notice how he defines the good works. It's the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not our good works. It's not the good works that we come up with. It's the good works that God prepared beforehand or ahead of time that we should walk in them. You see, God's at work in our lives, but what God's doing in our lives as He works and shapes and molds us, He's saying, I've got works that I have prepared ahead of time for you. I've got a purpose for your life. I've got a destiny for your life. I've got how I want to take you and how I want to use you every day, as well as the theme and the journey of your life. But it's what I've come up with. This is coming out of God's mind. This is coming out of God's activity. Now, notice he says that these are the good works which God prepared beforehand. Anything that God prepares, he does a good job. He does a 100% job of. He's not going to give you a work 
that you are halfway prepared for. He's going to give you a work to do for Him that He prepares you 100% for. So if I'm going to do the works that God prepares for me to do, that I am to walk in, the purpose He's got, if I'm going to do that, then God's made a commitment to us that He's prepared that work ahead of time. What does that mean? He means He's going to equip you to do that work. He's going to empower you to do that work. He's going to give you what is necessary to do that work. When we walk around and we moan and groan about how, oh, I'm just serving Jesus and it, I'm giving it everything I give, but it's so tough and it's so hard. What we are really confessing is, I'm working in my work. I'm doing my work. I'm confessing my inadequacies. If I am walking in the work that God has for me, the confession of my mouth needs to be this and should be this. I'm where the Lord wants me, doing what God wants me to do, and I am walking in and seeing the provision of God. I'm seeing God all around me, preparing the ground, working alongside of me, encouraging me, giving me the strength, meeting the needs. I'm walking in the provision and in the call of God. Because God is not going to call you to a work and then back off and say, well, have at it. We're going to see this in a moment with the life of Jesus. Now notice verse 1. He says... We're to run that race with patience or with endurance. It's the idea of it is a marathon, not a 50-yard dash. A lot of Christians give up and give out because they try to run like it's a 50-yard dash. It is a marathon. But folks, have you ever looked at what marathon runners look like after they've gotten into the race good? It's not pretty. They are sweating profusely, sucking in air. You can see the muscles in their legs pulling out everything they've got. By the time they get to the finish line, sweat is just pouring off of them. Most of them, when they get to the finish line, just sort of drop. You see, the issue is not how good you look when you're running the race. The issue is going the distance. If you and I concentrate on how good we look running the race, we're never going to finish the race. If we won't give a flip about what we look like running the race, as long as we get off of the finish line, then our priority is where it needs to be. When you get out there serving the Lord, and you are just staying after it, you're going to start sweating after a while. You, it's going to get tough. And sometimes we start getting discouraged because we feel like we don't look good running the race. We get tired. We want to give up. We get angry at times. We, know, you know, we don't just know, run around singing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound all the time. I mean, it's a struggle to praise Him. And we get discouraged because we feel like we don't look good. But God never called you to look good running the race. He just called us to get down the race and finish. Don't worry about what you look like running the race for him. Just focus on the making it, going the distance for him. Now, how do we get there? How do we do that with endurance? How do we run that race? It's in prayer. Prayer keeps us focused. Prayer clarifies. Prayer empowers. Power, excuse me. Prayer keeps us close to Jesus. We run with God in prayer. 
And folks, let me say this. The other thing that we've got to learn to do is press into Jesus and stop pressing into our pain. And this is what I mean by that. You go through life, you're going to get beat up from time to time. You're going to get messed up from time to time. People are going to say things and do things that hurt you and you don't like. Some of you could go through seasons of this stuff happening. But if all I focus on is my pain and licking my wounds, I am never going to get where God wants me. I'm just going to sit and, sit and lick my wounds all the time. And we live in a culture today that we have become experts at wound licking. I mean, we just sit around and talk about how tough everything is and everything got to be therapeutic and make me feel better, et cetera, et cetera. But if I'm doing that, I can't press into Jesus because I'm so busy pressing into my pain and focusing on that. What he's saying here is you've got to focus on the Lord Jesus and press into him. And we'll see how Jesus did this in himself in just a moment and not focusing on the pain. Jeremiah Lamphere, the guy that started that prayer meeting in 1857, in one of these pamphlets he was hang, handing out, asked this question, how often shall I pray? Listen to his words. How often shall I pray? As often as the language of prayer is in my heart. As often as I see my need of help. As often as I feel the power of temptation. As often as I am made sensible of any spiritual declension or feel the aggression of a worldly spirit. That is, I want to wander away from Jesus. And now listen to what he says. In prayer, we leave the business of time for that of eternity. And we leave engagement with men for engagement with God. Now, how did Jesus run the race? He's our example. Verse 2. He says, looking to Jesus. The idea of the verb looking there means to look away to Jesus. In other words, I intentionally and deliberately look away from all the distractions so I can look exclusively at Jesus. I want you to think about the life and ministry of Jesus. And I can't, of course, I don't have time to go through the Gospels and all of it. But think of some of the highlights. Well, everything was a highlight. But think with me over some of the aspects of it. Twelve years of age. He's in the temple. Parents go in there to get on him because he's been separated from the family for several days. And what's he doing? He is answering the questions of the learned scholars there in the temple. Asking them questions, answering their questions. That's the wisdom, the understanding of Jesus on display. When it says looking to Jesus, we got to look at all that Jesus is. You see, sometimes what we do is we look at just little bits of who Jesus is. Or we get one aspect of who Jesus is, and that's all we look at and all we talk about instead of looking at the circumference of who he is. See, the reason some Christians are bored with Jesus is because they looked at one aspect of who he was at some stage in their life, but they never moved beyond that. So they think that all Jesus is is just that one part, that one aspect, instead of waking up every day and exploring a new vista of who he is. 
In the temple, he's the teacher. In the temple, he's the young guy with the wisdom. In the temple, he's the one guy who can answer your questions. He's the guy who can point you to the Lord and explain who God is in the temple as a young man. But it doesn't stop there. As an adult, early on in his ministry, he pulls up a chair and he sits down one day and these little kids come up to him. And as you stand back and watching it, he's the guy that the kids feel comfortable approaching and talking to and sitting in his lap. And he's got time for them and patience for them. And the disciples say, don't you have something better to do with your day than hang out with a bunch of snotty-nosed children? And he says, that's what my kingdom is all about, is snotty-nosed children and hanging out with them and spending time with them and investing in them. Now, Jesus did that because the snotty-nosed kids meant the world to him, but Jesus knew that the snotty-nosed kids were going to grow up to be adults someday, and he was putting something in the treasure chest of their lives that they would carry with them for the rest of their lives. But he's the guy who has time for the kids. Then there's the day he walks into Gardea. And as he walks into that town, he and the disciples can hear screaming and shouting coming from the other end of town. The disciples ask, what's that? What's that sound? Sounds horrible. Some wild animal loose on the other part of town. Locals say, ah. There's a guy up there in the cemetery full of demons and he screams and he shouts and he runs all over that cemetery and nobody goes up there because that screaming and shouting is going on. He looks horrible. His clothes are ripped. He's bleeding. There's pus. And Jesus and the disciples hear that and no doubt the disciples thought, well, the one place we ain't going today is up in that cemetery. And they look at Jesus and he takes a step and it's towards the cemetery. Then he takes another step, and it's towards the cemetery. And he takes another step, and it begins to dawn on the disciples, we are not avoiding the cemetery. We are headed for the cemetery. And the, loud, and the screaming gets louder as they get closer. And then they see the visions of this guy running around, and they see how horrible he looks. And as they get closer, they can smell him from a distance with all that pus and dried up blood and so forth. And they're like, I can't believe we're going there. Could you imagine the blood pressure on those disciples? They'd have blown a cuff off their arm if you'd have put it on them that afternoon. And they get up there, and what is Jesus trying to say? The power of darkness will not exist when I get in the picture. I'm not running from the darkness. I'm running to the darkness because light is always more powerful than darkness. He walks into the cemetery. He walks up to the demon act. He looks those demons in the eyes. And they start shaking in their boots because the power of Almighty God is confronting them. He cast the demons out. And the Bible says that when the day ended, the guy who had been shrieking and screaming and yelling was sitting clothed and in his right mind. Because that's what Jesus does against the powers of darkness. The importance of seeing that picture of Jesus is that when you and I encounter the powers of darkness, what are we called to do in the name of Jesus to confront the powers of darkness and know His victory? On the cross... We see the love of God through Jesus in its full display. And then three days later, on the road to Emmaus, 
we see Jesus walking with some of his disciples who are so overcome with grief they cannot even recognize him. And he begins to take Genesis through, through Malachi and teach them who he is and how he's risen from the dead. He's showing us there not just the power of the resurrection but the companionship of the resurrection. He didn't walk out of that tomb to impress people. He walked out of that tomb to walk with us. Notice verse 2. It says that he is the found, excuse me, founder of our faith. Now I want to give you two examples of this idea of being the founder of our faith. The Greek word there literally means the pioneer of our faith. Now, the idea of being the founder, the pioneer of our faith is that he puts our faith together. We don't. God does not call you to build and put your own faith together. He just calls you to use what he gives you. Let me illustrate this in two ways. Imagine baking a cake. If you just walk into a kitchen and you're going to bake a cake, you don't know what kind of cake you're going to bake. You don't have a clue as to what the ingredients are going to be. So you're going through the kitchen just sort of pulling ingredients where you can find them that's the way a lot of us approach faith I gotta believe God I gotta believe God for this I gotta believe God for that so I'm gonna start pulling ingredients from all over the place to try to believe God for something now if my wife cut me loose in the kitchen and told me to go bake a cake it would be a disaster I couldn't decide what kind I was going to bake. I couldn't figure out where the ingredients were going to be, etc. But let's say my wife says, Honey, I want you to bake a carrot cake. So she gets the carrot cake mix. And she lays out the milk and the eggs and whatever else it is so that the whole recipe is laid out there with how I'm supposed to put that thing together. All I've got to do is work at baking it. The ingredients are already there. That's entirely different than me walking in there and grabbing stuff. Folks, stop walking in the kitchen of faith and trying to grab stuff. Jesus has already got the ingredients on the counter. He's already told us what he wants baked. We're running around the kitchen freaking out when he's saying, would you just pay attention to what I already put on there? I'm not asking you to run through your life and trying to throw faith together. I think God this, did God that. Take my word and look what I have already done. Look at my promises. Look at my character. Look at my track record. I will build your faith. The ingredients are on the table. Just look at the ingredients and follow my instructions and I will build your faith. Now, the second illustration I want to give you on what it means to be the pioneer, as I've shared with you before, I came here, I worked a lot with the basketball ministry in Chesapeake. And I used to watch my head coach. He worked a lot with our 13 to 15-year-old teams. Coach James would walk on to the court, and he would always bring with him this eraser board that had, was marked up like a basketball court. And then he would start putting X's and O's on the eraser board. And then he'd start looking at guys and he'd say, listen, this is the play. That's the play I want you to run. That's the play you better execute. That's the play we train for in practice. 
Now, I had one coach, great, wonderful guy, but he wanted to play pickup every time we went out on the court. If you go out there and all you do on a basketball court is play pickup like you were on the street and you're playing against a team that's got a game plan and plays that they practiced, you are going to get beat in the ground. And bless his heart, but his team went through a season and didn't win one game because they never practiced plays. They never executed plays. Coach James' teams always had plays. And if they listened to him and followed him on the plays, they'd usually win the games. Now, when it says that Jesus is the pioneer of our faith, what he's saying here is, I already drew up a game plan. If you will just follow my game plan and execute my game plan and listen to me, then you'll win the game. You will win the faith game. But when you start trying to play pickup and do your own thing, it is going to be a disaster. And the reason we get beat up and so discouraged is a lot of us don't bother to study the game plan. We try to do our own thing in faith. Follow his plan. He is the founder. He's the one who's drawn it up. And then next it says that Jesus is the perfecter. It is the idea that he matures our faith. Now, how does he mature our faith? He matures our faith the same way he matured his own. How did he mature his own? It says that he endured the cross. He suffered because he was called to suffer. And we're going to suffer sooner or later because if we follow the one that was called to suffer, we're going to suffer. Notice the next piece. He despised the shame. He despised the shame. There were some aspects of running the race that Jesus despised. When he, they beat the life out of him, he didn't enjoy that. When he hung on the cross and they st stripped all his clothes and he hung there naked, he despised the shame. When the sin was poured on him and the shame of it, he despised it. Folks, there are going to be some aspects of serving the Lord and walking with the Lord that we are going to despise. I would like to tell you that following the will of God and walking in the will of God is going to put a smile on your face every day and we're just going to trip through it and love every minute of it. But there are going to be some aspects of living His will that we will despise. He despised the shame, but what kept him at it? What keeps you at it when you despise some of the aspects of obedience, when you and I struggle with some of the aspects of obedience. Notice verse 2. It says, For the joy that was set before him. Now, I want you to follow me closely in what I'm about to say. For the joy that was set before him. Do you remember? see those words there? That was set before him. If you go earlier on, it said the race that was set before us. When do we run the race that was set? We're running it right now. When was the joy set before him? While he was going through the cross. The joy was right there. Now, how in the world do you get joy in enduring the cross? How do you get joy when you are suffering with him and for him? How do you have joy when you are despising the shame? It's the joy of knowing that you are living out the will of God. It is the joy of knowing that you are fulfilling what God has for you. You see, as Jesus hung on the cross despising the shame, suffering horribly. 
He looked down at the people that were spitting on him and cursing him. And he said, the blood that is dropping from my hands is going to cleanse them and deliver them and set them free. He looked at the crowd that was there on that hill and he said, now I can save them and cleanse them and take them to heaven. He looked over at that thief and said to him, Lord, will you remember me? And Jesus looked back at the thief and he knew that that blood that was staining that cross was going to save that thief. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise because I just made the way open for you to go to paradise. And folks, when we struggle and when we suffer for him, we know that the joy that is set before us is the joy of the Lord we're fulfilling his will notice what it says he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in the ancient world when you sat down it was the way of communicating the jobs completed done and finished when he sat down at the right hand of God It was his way of saying, the job's done. You see, when Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. He wasn't just crying that because he was going to die and it was over with. When he cried, it is finished, what he was saying was the job's done. The job is complete. I have fulfilled 100% the will of God. Nobody can add anything to it. Don't need to add anything to it. On the right hand of God, that's the place of recognition. It's the place of prestige. And it is the place of special honor. And then Jesus knew that the joy that was set before him was that he was going into the presence of the Father to be crowned with glory and honor and that he would bring many to that same glory. The joy that is set before us is the satisfaction of fulfilling the will of God in this life. But oh, don't lose sight of this, folks. It ain't just about this life. Glory to God, it isn't just about this life. The joy that is set before us is that someday we will arrive in His presence. We will stand before Him. But how do we want to do that? We want to do that as saying, I'll live my life to fulfill God what you call me to do. I ran the race with you Jesus and here it is there's an old hymn that says must I go and empty handed I don't want to go empty handed I want to present to him how I live my life this side as a gift to him not that I could ever repay him because you see ultimately we will not stand in his presence we will kneel in his presence and fall on our faces in his presence on that day. Jeremiah Lamphere, in prayer, we leave the business of time for that of eternity, and engagement with men for engagement with God. Living by faith. I want to encourage you to pray for that who's your one student that you picked up in that refrigerator magnet. And we got the prayer guides around here if you want to pick up one of those guides today as you leave.
but to be in prayer for God to touch them and work with them and fill them with the Spirit and raise them up to serve Him. I want to encourage you to join us tomorrow night in this room at 7 o'clock. Because we're going to gather to pray that God will pull off another 1857. That God will pour out His Spirit. And we're doing this because we sense that God is calling us to prayer. But I want to encourage you this morning that I am picking up vibes that this is happening all over our country. This morning, I mean this past week, on Thursday morning, I met with some pastors from Franklin County that are gathering on the front porch of a home. And we are praying for our county and praying for our churches and praying for our nation. One of the pastors who was there shared with me that there's a group of pastors in Henry County that have begun to gather on a weekly basis and pray for our nation. There's a national-wide prayer walk that's going to take place, I think it's September the 26th in Washington, D.C. I'm starting to see a movement that's exciting me across this nation of believers saying, we need to pray we need to seek God together. We need to get desperately serious about asking God to do it again in this nation. And so many times we look back on 1857 and we say, well, that was wonderful. Well, that was back then. Like God is confined to history. We're the ones who get confined to history. God isn't. And let God pour out His Spirit and do in us and through us what only He can do in the way He wants to do it. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we come to You. And Jesus, we want to ask that You would give us another 1857-1858 in the United States. That would spill from these shores, Lord, as it did then around the world. Dear God, this is supernatural what we're asking for. Father, we don't want to live and walk anymore in the natural, what we can accomplish. Father, we want to see and experience firsthand what only you can accomplish. Jesus, give us the strength to run the race, to lay aside whatever sin it is in our lives that we just naturally have a proclivity to run to and pick up and engage in. And to lay it aside, not just because the sin is so rotten, but because Jesus is so awesome. And we don't want anything to hold us back from you, Jesus. Lord, teach us, call us, push us to press into you. And to know, Lord, your power and the glory of who you are. And to, Lord, have an appetite and a thirst and a desire and a hunger, Jesus, for you greater than anything else in our lives. Lord, would you do that in us? Would you do that in our church? Would you do that within the body of Christ? God, help us to run the marathon with endurance because you're worth it. And Lord, as we do it, we run in the satisfaction of who you are. And as we run, Lord, we are looking forward to that day that we will be in your presence. Lord, we ask this. We pray for this. We plead you for this. 
And God, as we will begin gathering and praying in more intense ways, Lord. And God, as we are joining members of the body of Christ, God, as I see you moving your body, not only here in Rocky Mountain, in Franklin County, but in Henry County and in different places, Lord. God, it's exciting to me to see what I sense as a move of your spirit, Lord. Across this nation. Of your church calling out to you. God, in 1857, that led to churches that became full. That led to people saying, hey, I'll teach Sunday school. That led to people being baptized by the thousands. That led to it spilling <clears throat> over to other nations. Lord, we look unto you and we call upon you. Lord, teach us, call us to look away from whatever it is we're looking to and to look to Jesus. We thank you, Lord. Just a moment. Our praise team is going to lead us as we sing. But I want to encourage you that as we sing, we are praying as we sing. That this song will be a prayer from us to the Lord. And we worship Him. And if you're here today and you say, I want to know Jesus. Or you're listening and you say, or watching through social media and you want to know Jesus. Then just call out on Him and say, Jesus, would you save me? Jesus, would you cleanse me? Jesus, claim me. Jesus, I want to belong to you. And Jesus, I will follow you. Oh, Lord, I will follow you. If you make that decision, please come to myself or to Jacob or your leaders and let them know because we want to encourage you. We'd like to place a book in your hand to help you grow in Christ. Contact us here at the church either through email or through Facebook or calling us so that we can encourage you in walking with Jesus. Let's stand together here in this room and let's worship our Lord together.